iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Matt Dickinson, and for this edition of Lifetimes, I went to Twickenham to sit down with Eddie Jones. As media and fans, we know England's rugby coach as a tough, demanding taskmaster. But there's a lot more depth, and even a soft centre, as I discovered. France 21, England 31, and for the first time in 13 long years, England a Grand Slam Six Nations champions. Winning the Grand Slam means you beat every team in the competition. It means you're the most dominant team, so I think everyone's ecstatic to be the most dominant team in Europe. Yeah, so that's a nice first step for us, but it's only a small step because we've got much larger steps to go. Will they get the try from Maro Itoje? The score has gone loose and England have done it. They've got another try from Danny Kerr. It is confirmed. They're Six Nations champions again. Nearly 60 points on the board. It's another try. England 59, Scotland 21. And they are again Six Nations champions. It's a heck of an impressive record, Eddie, by any standards. But I was watching a, a recent interview with you, and, and you said, every day I wake up and I'm worried. Um, is, that, is that really the case? Uh, yeah, no, I think it is. Uh, well, I think that's the only way you can keep your hunger for, for growing, because, you know, coaching sport at the highest level, it's, it's one of the most competitive and probably intriguing environments and and you've got to keep developing you know if you ever think that you've actually made it and you feel comfortable as the day that you know you're no longer going to be in the job or coaching a, a good team so that's probably a habit I've, I've created uh, I'm not naturally like that but uh, from a professional point of view I find that works the best that daily discomfort it sounds hard work though uh, it is hard work and I think that's why you find People don't do it for long periods or they get bored with doing it. Um, and you've just got to just got to be at it all the time. You've got to have people around you that help remind you. I'm lucky my wife uh, is a very sort of commonsensical person, so she doesn't let me get too far ahead of myself. And one of the good things I've done with England is brought in an older coach from another sport uh, just to help me make sure we maintain good focus all the time. I mean, I mentioned right at the start, obviously working in, in so many different countries and cultures, England's first um, foreign coach. I, mean, I was just wondering how much is that something by design, something that maybe suits your character, or is it, is it something that almost happens then? Uh, I think it's, well, first it was a result of Australia divorcing me. Um, and then I decided I wanted to look for, for different, different opportunities. And the first place I went, after that was actually England. You know, I came to Saracens and coached and loved it. I loved the rugby environment. I thought, well, there's no real reason for me to go back to Australia. I've done most of the things I could probably do in Australia, so let's see what we can do around the world. And I think it also, it's not only interesting from a coaching point of view, just from a life point of view, uh, living in different cultures, different societies, trying to work out what's important and what's not important because that has massive implications on how you coach. And that presumably must, must be informed by your parentage, obviously, you know, Australian father, Japanese mother, presumably that, 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 give, that must give you a slightly different world view. Uh, well, probably because I never f fitted in. You know, I was always in Australia. I was a 
half Asian or half Chinese as you were known back then because most Australians didn't know what Japanese were so you're either Japanese, Chinese so you just had to sort of find a way to fit in um, and I did that through sport and then when I go to Japan I'm half Australian so yeah, and in, in England I'm uh, a foreigner uh, it's, it's interesting, I was at Saracens the other week and the bloke comes up to me and says look you're doing a fantastic job for a foreigner uh, and I, I couldn't stop laughing. Um, but yeah, and, and and you know that's part of the challenge. How how do you how do you make a contribution, and how do you work out where you fit in? Do you revel in being a, a outcast almost? Is that it, it, or did that must have been uncomfortable? Presumably, when you're growing up, no one, no kid likes to feel excluded. Yeah, well, I don't think I reveled in it, but I think I found a way. Like the, the way for me, I, I became reasonably competent at rugby and and cricket, and therefore, if you're good at sport in Australia, you know, you immediately take a sort of a, a rank up. And uh, I was pretty competitive, so that also helped. Um, and that's probably just carried on into my coaching. You know, mm. I don't revel in being an outsider, but it does afford you opportunities sometimes you don't get when you're from that country. I think, you know, if I look at it, at the English job, it's easy for me to be more objective than an English coach because I'm, I don't come with a certain educational pedigree. I don't come with a certain class pedigree. And, and certainly those factors are are evident in, in what I see in English rugby and in English society. So because I, I don't fit in there, I can I can look at the players more objectively. Right. Just one thing wanted to touch on with, with your parentage. I mean, I was doing the research, I mean, I didn't know the detail about obviously your mum's upbringing, um, family going into internment camps in, in America after Pearl Harbor. I mean, that a, sounds a traumatic experience for, for for her to enjoy was it was that spoken about much as uh, as a family we never really spoke about it um because one, one of the things my mother tried to do because when we were growing up it was very much white australia you know i remember the primary school i went to there was one other egyptian boy and, and myself and everyone else was anglo-saxon white anglo-saxon so she made a decided um policy that we were brought up as Australians, and we didn't tend to speak about anything else but being Australian. But as as uh, we've got older, we've had some conversations about it, and there was a great uh, movie out called Snow Falling on Cedar, I think it was called, and it was a lovely novel. I remember reading that and watching the movie, and it probably gave me a great insight into the difficulties she had when she was growing up, and then we started having some conversations, you know, things like... As soon as the Japanese were put in internment camps, her father went to one camp, her, uh, the kids and the mother went to another camp, and they'd, the only way to communicate in those days were letters. So they'd send letters to each other and they'd open up the letter and there'd be bits cut out of the letter, um, which had been um, obviously checked by the authorities. So they, they had to live like that for, I think, six or seven years. Six, seven years? Yeah. Wow. That's... And then when they went back to Japan, because then my... My mother's father didn't want to live in America. They went back to Japan and, uh, of course, Japanese didn't like the Japanese that lived overseas, so they went back and they were outsiders. And obviously Japan at that stage was a pretty traumatic place. You know, they used to, instead of having rice, they'd have wheat with the rice. It was hard to hard to make ends meet. Mm. And Australia's, shall we say, yeah, I mean, it's got a... Mixed record with with race in some ways, so yeah, it's it's quite a, it's quite amazing. I think uh, yeah, I think one of the nice things about you know how they say has evolved it has been Australia's turned into a multicultural country, whereas initially you know it was very monocultural. And you go back now, and there's there's so many mixed marriages. You know, I think my mother was the first or second Japanese to to marry a, a, a foreign foreign soldier anyway, at least. Mm. Um, so she was sort of the forerunner of all these mixed marriages in Australia. Right, right. And describe your dad in all this. What what influence does he have on you? Just good, tough Aussie, you know. Didn't say a lot. Um, sorry. Took your time. 
just a good, genuine person. Uh, Australian men of that era didn't say much, you know, so he was, he'd spend his days, at, he'd bet on Saturdays, watch the footy, have a few beers, pretty down to earth. Yeah, but he'd, uh, he'd been a serving soldier, so he's, he's made of some tough stuff as well. Yeah, no, I think he, he went to, uh, well, he fought at the end of World War Two when as part of the occupation force to Japan, and, and he also fought in uh, Vietnam, so he had quite a... A very background, but just a really good guy. Yeah, yeah. Is it? it and obviously, you say growing up, sport was sort of integral to your sort of settling in. I saw somewhere that you described Ian Chappell as as sort of one of your early sort of role model heroes. Is that is is that is that right? Yeah, hundred percent. Absolutely loved him. Yeah, I can always remember. I think it was the might have been the fifth test or the sixth test. 1970, uh, when Underwood and Snow, were, Snow particularly was was just demolishing the Australian batsmen, and they got beat. They were behind two 0 I think, and Bill Laurie, the Victorian captain, got sacked, and they brought Chapel in. Brash had his shirt undone to his his uh, quite low, no sense of convention, and just from that day on, you you saw it. A resurgence of Australian cricket, and all all led by his personality. I'm sure you know he's been attributed to a lot of sledging and some of the bad things in the game, but he had to make a mark. He had to break the mould, and he did. Well, I was going to say, I mean, if, if Ian Chappell's your hero, the, the first, especially as a pom, I guess that someone's up, tough, uncompromising, a bit of sledging. Maybe some of the things that <laughs> might be uh, used to describe you, but you would take as a a compliment? Well, I think you just got to find a way. And, you know, I think in all of that, he had a sense of fairness about him. Um, yeah, I always thought it was intriguing watching him captain against Brearley because Brearley was almost the opposite, you know, intellectual, not a great player, but but thought deeply about the game, conducted himself as a, as a gentleman. And I think, yeah, you know, Chapel was rough, but I think he was also fair about the game. Right. Hard and fair. Yeah. Yeah. The sledging is part of it. You just, I love the description. I think you said of yourself that you were a better sledger than a player when you were coming through. Is, <laughs> you, st- you stand by that? Uh, well, I don't know whether that's complete fact, but the, the fact, again, I was a little bloke. I was an 80K hooker, you know, and I was playing against people that are 110Ks. Um, so you had to find some advantage. <laughs> so if you couldn't find it through your physical prowess, you had to find it through your thinking prowess. Is that where your your sharp tongue, your your turn of phrase, your your, your quick wit come, comes from? I, I, I always think you know the games we play, you know, whether it be cricket or rugby or or rugby league or football, the physical part's the easy part. You know, the hard part's the thinking part, and I think. Yeah, even today there are still massive advantages in in saying the right thing at the right time, that you can elicit a response from either your team or elicit a different response from the the other team that may help you in the game. And and in the end of the game, you know, we're in in a winning game. Can you describe Eddie Jones, the hooker on the pitch then, if you're um, getting involved in in a bit of... um, Mental disintegration, I think, wasn't it? One of the warns called it of, yeah. uh, of the opponents. Well, it was more about, you know, I'd uh, look to see where we could find an edge. Um, I always remember going back and playing against my old club, Randwick, and I left. Um, I played 10 years for him and went to Southern Districts where a mate of mine was coaching just for one year. And we played against Randwick and I knew the hooker, or the tight head prop, sorry, was, he was an old mate of mine. And I thought, well, I've got to find some way to upset him because we can't handle him. So first scrum, I kissed him. And he didn't know what to do. He had no idea what to do. Didn't know how to react. Wait, are we talking on the cheeks or on, on the lips? On, not on the lips, on the cheek, yeah. <laughs> so that was just an example, you know, trying to put some thought into how we could, how we could win that game. We ended up winning. Well, so it worked. Yeah, yeah. No, so it worked. I wouldn't kiss him again, though. <laughs> I was going to say, was that, was that a one-off? That was <laughs> definitely a one-off. The um, you you trained as a as a teacher. Do you, do you think you'd have been happy if if you'd stayed a teacher? Oh, I'd love teaching. Um, you know, I was lucky enough to do it for ten years. I ended up 
being acting uh, principal uh, for 18 months. And I, I yeah, the, one of the, probably the pivotal moments of my life, I went in to see the chairman. Uh, it was a, a really good relationship with him. And I said to him, look, I said, I'm thinking of doing a master's degree or coaching. And I said, have you got any advice for me? He said, go and coach. So that was it. That was the end of my teaching degree. Not because uh, I didn't like it, um, but I had to get better qualifications to stay in the positions I was in. And as soon as rugby went professional, I thought I might as well give rugby a go. Yeah. Were you a good teacher? You, did, did, uh, I was good with the lower classes. Um, again, could probably find a way to, to motivate them to learn. Uh, and I always enjoyed those classes because you had to teach differently. You had to find a way to, to get them to work together. And, and teaching a, a classroom is like coaching a team. You know, you, you got a class there, you've got to work out some general frameworks of how you're going to operate. And then you've got to find for each individual how you can get the most out of them probably one of the biggest discussions around coaching these days isn't it? is is the modern generation different yeah. can do you have to be somehow softer with them um people don't think you are but is have you had to adapt your stuff oh i've definitely changed um but i think there's there's a couple of things of that um i think the thing that hasn't changed is that when you're out on the field and when you're coaching, you've got to be absolutely demanding and you've got to know the standard you want and make sure you get there. Now, how you get there uh, has changed a little bit, but not greatly, because instead of telling the player what to do, now you'll tend to ask them what to do, ask them a question, was that the right thing to do there? And the response will generally be better. Um, and I think off the field has changed the most um, now you really have to use a variety of mediums you have to work hard to generate relationships um, because I think with the advent of, of smartphones players engage in conversation less and you have to work harder to have conversations and you have to work harder to find areas of common interest um, and the way you get the players to learn has changed enormously like before, you could come in and say, right, boys, these are three things we're going to do, A, B, C and D, A, B and C. Is everyone right with that? And everyone say yes, and you'd know 60% knew what to do and the 40% wouldn't, but the 60% would carry the 40%. Now you've got to engage the players in a whole wide of whole range of, of mediums. You've got to prime them to learn. Um, You've got to make sure you've got visual, you've got to make sure you've got some, some uh, uh, oral, you've got to make sure you've got some uh, visual, you've got to continually test and retest. So it's probably the most fascinating area, I think, that coaching's changed. Conflict is a word that comes up a lot when you read about your style. I think there was a quote, you know, conflict in any organisation is important because from conflict you get creativity. 100% agree with that. I think you've always got to have some creative tension and I think if you don't have different ideas and good debate, and that's sometimes conflict, you can never get the best result. With England side now, we've got a really good bunch of players and a really good bunch of coaches that have different opinions. So I think we're at our creative best at the moment. Um, and I think you continue to do that because you know, if someone presents an idea and everyone in the room agrees, then you pretty much know it's a bad idea. <laughs> You know, if someone's not saying, couldn't we do it better this way? You need to have that conflict. And sometimes, you know, if I think we're going well, I'll, I'll artificially create a conflict to just make sure everyone's right on the edge of their seats. How do you, how do, you do that? Change your mood sometimes. Uh, create a problem, manufacture a problem. Not so much with the players, sometimes a little bit, but more so with the staff to keep them, keep them right on edge. Um, I think so, so read, when you were with Japan, you would, for, you know, you wanted to create a leadership culture there, so you make sure a bus didn't turn up. Or I mean, was it literally get down to that? Sort yeah, of thing? no, no, no. Done those things. Uh, set up team meetings and not turned up. Set up training sessions, not turned up. Yeah, allow the opportunity for for your players to fail, for your staff to fail, because that's the way they learn the most. Right. That's interesting because I guess. People think that the, the leading coaches are all about control, and but that sometimes you have to re relinquish that. Oh, I think that's that's becoming even more important these days, because 
because of the players lead such a controlled life, particularly in in any of the professional sports now. You know, they go from high school; they've probably gone to a sports high school. Everything's laid out for them. They then go to a, a academy, and then they go to a professional team. So. They have a very small range of experience, and you've got to try to create different experiences for them. Mm. In football, I think they find that with academy players, they're sort of coming out with a better technical quality, but there are, as you say, big issues about leadership and problem solving and, and self reliance. Yeah, yeah, no, that's 100% right. It's the same in rugby? Yes, 100%. Is it when you're managing that conflict, I guess it's a dangerous thing to play with almost, is it? Are there times when you've allowed it to go too far or you've just pushed 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 oh, we, you can always get it wrong and I've, and again from a coaching perspective if you're not getting it wrong some of the times you're probably not pressing it hard enough so you know we went through a bad period in the six nations last year and i made a decided policy to try to push the team as hard as i could because we'd won two in a row and i wasn't i didn't think the state we were in could win us a world cup that we had to we had to change and go to another level and, and sometimes you've got to create a why for the players to change and so we, we didn't purposely lose games but I pushed the players physically beyond what they'd ever experienced before and it was, it was hard, it was a hard period because we lost games and as you know the media gets on your back and everything's looked at a uh, hundred times and, and players start thinking well is this right um, so that was, that was yeah we played with a bit of fire there because you, you were, I mean, people were, I guess, genuinely questioning then, is is this a slump that's going to stop? There's the, like people see in Jose Mourinho, for example, he's a sort of two or three year man. Yeah. That that question was being asked, but were you asking, do you ask yourself? No, 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 because... No. You saw a plan. Most most of the time I knew what I was doing. <laughs> you, nev you never know all the time, because you got, you've got to play a bit, you've got to... Yeah, there's certain things, I'm, I'm sure it's the same when you're writing a, an article, there's certain things that are non-negotiable for a good article. And then you've got, a, you've got a range of options there that you can play with, and you've got to keep playing with those to get the right mix. And within that sort of com world of conflict, I mean, you, you sound like you're hugely demanding of yourself. You're up five o'clock every morning, is that right? Uh, yeah, but I don't find that demanding because of the fact that I'm doing something I love. You know, how lucky am I? To, to coach rugby. You know, I'm privileged, absolutely privileged. So for me, it's just every day is a, a fantastic experience. Well, talk, yeah, talk, I mean, talk us through the first three hours of your day then. What have you, what have you done by uh, eight o'clock, which is when I'm getting out of bed? Well, five o'clock, it, uh, it shows you how things does change. I've started doing breathing exercise. I do five minutes of breathing exercise. At uh, five in the morning? Yeah, some of that mindfulness stuff. Okay. Um, what, what brought that on? Uh, I just thought, again, I needed to improve. How could I improve? So I do that. I have a uh, quite a rigid planning. I plan the day. So that generally takes up to about six. Then I go to the gym, work out for about an hour, come back and then then you're into the when we've got a team you're in the series of meetings and discussions when not with the team into more analysis and and working out ways of how we can get better i'm, I'm pretty exhausted listening to that <laughs> it's not that it's not that exhausting but it's it's i think you've said that one of the things you've had to learn is it, a tolerance of other not everyone does get up at five and not everyone is up and running that early. It, it, if you are driven to the extent you are, if you've got people around you who aren't, is that is that difficult? Uh, it is, and I think the only thing that's taught me there is age. Um, you know, when I was a younger coach, I was massively intolerant of people that didn't have the same desire to win. Um, but I think with age, I've learnt that everyone's different and uh, everyone does it their own way. Um, and also, I think part of that was definitely bringing up my daughter. Um, you know, she's 25 now, so I got to understand, because I wanted her to be like me, you know, and, and when she wasn't like me, I couldn't work it out. Um, so I think that's probably the best coaching experience I had. Really, of course, yeah. so you were expecting her to be sort of run, running at 100 yeah. miles an hour yeah. as well. Yeah. And what, is, what, what, what feedback did you get from her? From... Uh, <laughs> pretty direct feedback. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and it's funny now, she's turned out to be a very 
she's very committed to her profession. So she's actually logistics manager for the Wallabies now. So she's at the age of 25, she's done pretty well. So do you think it has rubbed off? She just uh, resisted for a while? I think so, yeah, in some ways. She won't say that, but uh, I think probably it has. Yeah. I mean, parenting is a, yeah, I mean, it's a trans- transformative experience. So is, uh, do you find you've taken that into coaching? Yeah, I, well, I think coaching that age bracket, I think really, oh, sorry, fathering at that age bracket really helped me to understand how different people are educated these days. Um, because you read all about it, but again, unless you experience it, it's, it's not the same. And I see it with the young players we come in now. You know, they've got, they seem to have a simple life, but a much more complex life now. You know, they're always trying to please someone. That, you know, they're concerned about how, what they look in social media. They're concerned who likes them, who doesn't like them. Um, there's this constant battle going on. And, and as a coach now, you, you've got to understand that. But at the same time, again, have those non-negotiable group of values and behaviours that you have to have to be part of a successful team. How much, I mean, how much time have you ever spent on Twitter? Uh, I've never looked at it. Never once no. looked at it? The only person I'm interested in looking at is Donald Trump. <laughs> but I don't <laughs> think I will. You, you don't relate to him as a leader, sure? No, no, no. But I, I just find it, the whole thing fascinating, just from a from a leadership point of view that the biggest country in the world can have someone who's, who's so, who appears to be so ill-disciplined in, in what he puts out. Yeah. Um, but I suppose he can get away with it. Sort of foreign policy coming out in yeah. one sentence on a social media. Yeah. Is, but I'm surprised because, for example, Dave Brailsford, who I, I think you've probably spent some time with and, and swapped notes with, but he... He's what we call a lurker on Twitter. You know, he'll sort of, yeah, keeps a low profile, but just sort of fishes around, sees what the feedback and stuff. Would you, would you not, would you not find that valuable just to sort of hear what's being said, being discussed? I probably, I've made a decided view that I don't basically read any social media. I don't read any popular media. Um, you know, I get fed things here and there, and I'll take an interest in it. And I'll get an idea from other people what's being said, but I just find if you, for me anyway, if you get involved in that, I'd want to do it seriously, and then it becomes a massive distraction for my job. Yeah, yeah. And, and when you see players, yeah, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, I mean, does part of you want to, you know, take them off it, shut it down, close it down, or no, because that's the way they communicate now. So. I think, again, you know, it's, it's how life's being led. You know, when we were that age, we used to go down the pub and have a few beers. Um, and, you know, some people thought that was bad. Um, so it's just a new way of doing things. So, yeah, we obviously encourage the players, particularly when they're with England, to, to use that to a powerful effect, which I think the English football side did during the World Cup and, and the French football side. So they're good role models for us to learn from. This is, I guess this brings us into the, the PR world a bit. I mean, do you, obviously, you, you want the team to be popular, um, but do you care? How much energy do you put into your own popularity? I mean, no, no one is oblivious to whether they're liked or not liked. Uh, well, I think when I was young, it was important when I was a young catch. Yeah, you wanted, you wanted to be liked, you wanted to be popular, but now, yeah, the only reason I'm coaching is because I love coaching and I love the players. So what other people think doesn't really bother me at all. Really? Yeah, is, is no, it? no, I, I think I've actually got to that stage where I, I'm not concerned about who says what. Um, yeah, I and mean, you know that if, you, if you're successful, you're going to have a percentage of people that like you and a percentage of people that don't like you. So I just don't find that to be valuable at all. And does that, can that only come with maturity, age, wisdom? Uh, I think so. And I think, you know, I'm not coaching to keep a job. That's the other thing. Um, and I think, you know, I can always remember uh, Arsene Wegner or it might have been Mourinho being asked whether they'd coach their national team. They said, oh, we'll do it when we're 65. And I reckon it's in a lot of ways it's, it's right. You only want to coach a national team when you can coach just for the, just for the pure joy of coaching the team and doing something for the country because they're difficult jobs 
you know, because you're never right. Mm. You always got people who want your job. You can always do the job better than you. Um, and it's something you've got to do where you don't want to be doing it to keep your job. You want to be doing it because you want want to do the job well and then and, take the consequence with it. And presumably it's impossible to do if you, I mean, you need to as you listen to your coaches, but if you're listening to too many voices, presumably that... 100% you, you get distracted by it. Yeah, and the reality is that at the national level, you get given a, a pool of players and you've got to work with those pool of players. You don't get any choice. So there's a generation success of your of your team. You know, sometimes you're lucky, sometimes you get a good pool of players and other times you're not. And you've got to ride with that. Have you ever, yeah, I mean it's funny because you're you're also regarded as someone who you, as we say, uses the media. You know, you engage with the media and you see it as a maybe as a sort of tool, as a, as a weapon that can that can be used. Is that for, is that right? Well, I think there's a couple of things. I think firstly, I love the game, so I want the game to be popular. So I think as a head coach of the national team, you've got a got a responsibility to be interesting. And I think the second thing is that we know the media influences. So if we can influence what the media does, then, then you know, we can get a potential advantage. Sometimes it's a zero advantage. Sometimes, again, you've got to make, try to you might make a mistake. Um, but there's a, there's a potential advantage there. you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you, when you look back, I mean, is, has there been a time particularly when you do look back and think whether it was other voices or that outside forces to, to take you down the wrong way or, or, or you were making decisions to shut people up or prove a point that, that and you, were, you didn't have this inner belief? Uh, I, I think at the end of when I was the Australian coach, definitely I, uh, I was under a bit of pressure, made a couple of bad appointments on staff influenced by by the National Union and yeah, it always comes back to bite you. And that was probably, again, the lesson I had that if I'm ever gonna do that sort of job again, just do it on your own terms. Well, you mentioned, yeah, Donald Trump, probably probably not your role model. When, when you look around at the coaches, I, I think you've mentioned Pep Guardiola before you study a lot of other sports. When you look around and you see people at the top, who and why are the, are the coaches that you say, you know, I'd love a bit of what he's got or she's got. Uh, well, like I think Pep's an outstanding coach, and I think he's shown that he's always had good players. But I think the outstanding thing to me is that he always gets them to play in a very recognisable way. So you know, a team he he coaches plays with a certain amount of fluidity. You can see that he enjoys coaching his teams. I don't think he enjoys the media spotlight too much. 
I think he really enjoys coaching his teams. I like Klopp in a different way. Like, uh, he's a real energetic guy, but the smile's got a bit bit short over the recent weeks so this is a great test for him now yeah. I think but I think he's done a great job with them and it sort of suits that mentality of, the, of Liverpool um, so the football coaches I find you learn a lot like I'll study press conferences to see how they talk post the game pre the game um, because you can learn a lot from that Really? Yeah, learn a hundred a lot from that Can you give us a, I mean what, what springs to mind of, of people that you've I think, uh, yeah, just there was an instant the other day when I think City played Liverpool and I think City won and and they asked Klopp and he said, look, two good teams today, they're a little bit better than us. Like, just a nice approach to it, still giving his team plenty of confidence because the players listen to what you say at a, at, at a press conference and you can influence their mood going forward. And I think Klopp and and, Marie, and, uh, and Pep particularly are quite good at that, keeping a very positive vibe on things because you know what it's like. You've probably been on the, on the end of the microphone. When you lose a game, when you're being touted as being good, you know, it becomes the end of the world. You lose two and, and the whole solar system is going to fall in. To keep on track and keep focus for your team is just so important. And you, you spent time with Pep at Bayern Munich. Fantastic, and he was so giving of his time. I, I watched them train, um, then we had about a couple of hours together just basically talking about coaching. Very uh, innovative, very clear thinker about how he wants to play. Yeah, very impressive. And I think, I mean, he's known for yeah, very short intense sort of sessions it's not a sort of three hour thing it's yeah. right what can what can we do to, that's maximal for 45 minutes yeah. is can that work in rugby uh well we train in a similar similar way um we don't have long sessions you know the longest we'd have would be 50 minutes um and there's a lot to get in in rugby, so the pressure's on the coaches and the players to perform we just find it's much more beneficial for the players Right. That presumably means it's got to be absolutely 100% intense. Yeah, and you've got to do a lot more off the field to prepare for that, um, which helps with their, with their knowledge. And, and certainly when I went and watched Pep, it certainly changed the way I coached a little bit just or, and reinforced how I had been coaching, but more about you know, your sessions have to be intense. They have to mimic the game. If they're not mimicking the game, are they really preparing the players for the game? Is uh, I mean he does those was presumably he was doing those little rondos yeah, there was he? Yeah. Is there a, is there a rugby? Uh, no, <laughs> but the interesting thing of that watching Bayern Munich do a rondo as compared to some other clubs is like chalk and cheese. Like the intent that they practice because of the enthusiasm and the drive of Pep was considerably different from other teams I watch who basically do it as a routine. Yeah, and again, I mean, I see you see some teams will do it. It's almost just as a sort of warm up yeah. exercise. But as you said, I mean, you, you only have to see Manchester City or Barcelona play and realise it, it's it's no. the foundation no. for for their entire no. philosophy, no. isn't it? Yeah. And that's how they treat it. Yeah, every minute counts. Every yeah. minute of training is important. And you watch a lot of the teams; they come out, and, and basically that's not the case. And I think ultimately that teaches you bad habits because. Your training's everything. You know, how you prepare, how you think at training, how you physically prepare for the games or, or dictate how you play in the game. And I think, you know, that's the one thing I'd always hope that you see in your team is that, you know, they, they, they've got a plan and they're trying to execute that plan and then they've got the ability to adapt during the game. You believe, you believe in trans- transferable coaching skills? I mean... Clive, Sir Clive Woodward, obviously, uh, I, went, I went down to Southampton when he was, was football coaching there and um, th- those were the early days when he still was, was convinced it could be done. You studied other sports, but have you ever thought of other sports or do you, do you believe that it is transferable? I don't think so at all. I think it's a bit like thinking that, you know, if you can play rugby league, you can play rugby union. You can't just because they play on the same size pitch with the same ball. The psychology of the games are different. The actual skill sets are different. And unless you've grown up in that game, to coach it at the highest level, I think, is very difficult because you you miss the nuances of the game. Mm -hmm. And so whilst you can put a high-performance 
uh, environment in, you miss those nuances, and at the top level, the nuances are the most important thing. Yeah, essentially, I mean, I remember having that discussion with Clive and saying he probably doesn't know what he knew in rugby. You know, as you say, you see yeah. a player run, or you see you're picking up yeah. absolutely tiny details all the time if you're going in new to football so you, yeah. you don't fancy the England football job no, no, no. not at all not at all not at all <laughs> I think you did I just did see a quote I'm sure when you said it would be one of the great challenges to take on what oh, it'd certainly be a challenge uh, because the media uh, pressure they get compared to us is uh, tenfold at least do you think you could handle it uh, it'd be fun yeah yeah what would be what, what would be your strategy well, I'm not sure about it. I haven't thought about that Gareth, I mean, well, Gareth's doing a pretty good job. Have you, have you engaged with him? Uh, yeah, no, no, we've uh, caught up on a number of occasions. He's, I think he's doing a great job. And I think he's he's probably a good example of a young coach who's found a way to be successful with a young group of players. Mm. Um, I think he's been able to engage them really well, you know, get them out of the, the narrative of English football, which has been to be unsuccessful. Yeah. Yeah. And now they play hard. They play together, and they enjoy it. And not, I don't think they've got a fear of losing. But the, the next stage is going to be the difficult stage because now there will be expectations. The players are starting to get older. Yeah, there'll be a few more of them that are superstars. Mm. You know, and and so how they can handle that that next stage is going to be the most interesting part. Did you did you feel you inherited a narrative with the England rugby team or inherited baggage? Well, I've always thought England's been underperforming. Um, you know, if you look at the resources of the RFU and we're sitting at Twickenham today, there's no other national union that has a stadium like this, which obviously affords you some uh, financial stability. Um, and then you and then you look at the depth of the, the premiership here in terms of, of clubs, then you've got a depth of players. So if you've got financial security and you've got depth of players then you should be one of the top three countries in the world most of the time you know they're not always going to be um and that hasn't been the case so always thought there was opportunity to do something a little bit better but then when you get in the game here you find out why um because it's 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 a difficult job you know, because it's a battleground the national team is a battleground between the clubs and the rfu and you sit in the middle and, and you're blamed for most things. Um, the clubs aren't going well, it's your fault. The is not making money, it's your fault. Um, and that's the tricky part of it. That's been, that's, has that bit been the harder than uh, you expect? Well, I, I just feel like you're always being held back, you know, because there's wonderful players here and a wonderful opportunity, but it's always being held back by the traditions of the game here. You know, the, the traditions of the game here are such that the clubs uh, run them run themselves, basically, and the RFU try to manage it. So the RFU's got the financial clout, but the clubs have the political clout. And so you need those two to be working together to be sustainably successful. Yeah, I think, yeah, we've shown you can have some success here, but whether you can be sustainably, sustainably successful like a New Zealand side in the situation here, I think maybe maybe problematic is would you fancy being a rfu sar and coming in and changing the shape of the game as well then? no i've got no interest in doing that one again one of the things i've learned with age is do what you can do control what you can control and forget about the rest yeah you know, when i was the australian coach i wanted to do everything change how the high performance unit ran um and and you can't do that you got to. The only thing I can do is is produce a successful national team, and that's the only thing I want to do. You've you've got a book coming out about leadership. Is that for coaches? Is it for the man in the street? What what would you hope is going to be taken from it? What are the messages in it? Uh, well, I think that yeah, anyone can do it. Like I was a a young kid growing up in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, and I've managed to catch. You know, some of the most successful teams in the world. Um, if you're prepared to, to learn your craft, be curious, keep working at it, you can have a successful career coaching. And, I, you know, I'd like young coaches to read and say, right, that can inspire me to, to work a little bit harder at coaching. 
Um, curiosity is a word you've used, I think, two or three times. Uh, is that something you just had, or is that something that a particular person in your life gave to you? Yeah, I was having this debate the other day with someone that there's professional curiosity and personal curiosity. You know, if you go on a bus somewhere, you see some people will naturally be looking to see what's going around, other people will be on their phone, just not not caring at all what's going on. And I don't know how that manufactures itself, how you become like that. And I think I've always been curious, and you t I think people who tend to, to travel a bit have that have that in them. And then I think the professional curiosity is hard work. That you always got to be thinking there's something better out there. Someone knows better than me. And, and at the moment, you know, there is so much literature out there on performance. You know, every day there's a new uh, tipping point book. You know, there's a new blink book out there, you know, which were quite radical back, what was that, 10 years ago. Mm. You know, they were quite unique book. And now every day there seems to be a new one out that's telling you how to be successful. Um, so there's so much out there to learn and to get better at. And due to that, I mean, as you say, there are sports books, um, coaching books, self-help manuals are coming out sort of 10 by the day. Do you, do you devour lots of them? How do you, how do you work out what to well, read? I think one of the reasons the Amazon bloke's so rich is because of me. <laughs> um, yeah, I've got an office back at uh, our training centre that's just full of books. I don't tend to read... I, when I was young, I, I'd read the whole book and now I just tend to read the first one or two chapters and you generally pick up a couple of good points. And then again, it just allows you to increase your knowledge, allows you to, to go into a, a different uh, area where you can either stimulate your coaches or stimulate the players a little bit more. And if you go into sort of one, two or three that you just think these are ones that you'd always carry in your bag, what, uh, are there a couple that jump out? Yeah, no, um, there's one by Bill Walsh, the 49ers coach. It's like the textbook, I think it's called winning ways and it's it is the best book i've ever written on read on coaching i go back and i read it all the time really second one's uh phil riley i, I can't remember the name of it, the ex basketball coach and again it goes through almost a chronology of of how you develop a team then what happens to the team then how you get out of it and it's absolutely spot on written in a very simple way but outstanding book um, third book, there's a, a book written by a USA soccer coach, female coach. No, no, he's male coach, but he coached females uh, on coaching. Absolutely exceptional book. That's interesting. Three completely different sports. Yeah, yeah. well, I haven't found anything in rugby yet. <laughs> not, not Clive's. Uh, Clive's was a good read, but they, I always find the rugby books tend to be quite soft. Um, tend to be easy reads, and maybe that's what people want. Right, you find uh, these other ones more, these cha other more ones challenging. Because probably because there's a greater scope of having books in those bigger sports, so they can be more deliberate in in what they give people. Right. You started with the NFL, is it? What what can you, what do you take when you go back to it? Is it is it for reinforcement of something you're doing, or is it to be? jolted out of a mindset? Oh, I think it's organisation. Yeah, the one thing the NFL were good at and they probably still are, is getting a team organised because it's such a, a complex game. Organisation was one thing that, that was at the head of what they did. Um, and then basketball's a man management game. Yeah, you, know, you play 150 games, small squad, it's all about man management. So those two sort of fitted in together well in terms of developing your, your coaching expertise. And you'll read these and take notes to yourself and, and I mean do you apply them directly or do they just sort of seep in and you you just hope you're, uh, you're constantly improving from probably now more directed in what I read so I was just re reading the other day uh, a book on the Amazon guy um, not on his marriage but on his uh, <laughs> on his uh, how he runs his business and and again you know just about how important it is to be inventive how important it is to look at what can you do with this situation? Where can you find a way to be better? Um, yeah, and a lot of the thoughts, I think, in coaching is always, well, we can't do that. We've never done that before. Yeah, rather than, right, 
if this is an option, how can we do it? So we've just on the back of that, uh, we've had a couple of days or a couple of nights with the staff, the coaches, just about, right, where can we take the game? Where are basically the X factors we can get in our game? And, it's, and again, just by reading a book like that, it just sort of enlightens you a little bit. Well, so what are, yeah, I mean, what are the innovations in rugby that, that you've seen that you sort of thought, I'd have wanted that, or what, what, what is there to... Is there, is there seriously stuff out there you think that people just haven't seen yet? That, that oh, 100%. Yeah, they're always there. The margins get smaller. Um, so if you look at scrums now, we don't, no one plays back row moves. It's all nine straight to the ten, so maybe back row moves might come back in. Um, yeah, I'd like to think we've changed the way people look at kicking a little bit uh, and that kicking is an attacking ploy, not a defensive ploy. And I think so they're just at the edge of of what we need to do and, and going towards the World Cup to win a World Cup you've got to make sure you keep evolving because the more successful you are the more people study you and therefore the more important it is to keep evolving and also something I mean you, you talking to you here now you sort of think that you're, you know, you're, you're very you've been very engaging and open and I guess sometimes media <laughs> we just see the combative side but that's that. That seems an oversimplification of you. Oh, well, we I, think, you I think yeah, it's a battle, isn't it, with the media? Because as you know, you go to a media conference, they got a headline they want, and uh, sometimes it's not the headline that we want. So <laughs> then you're in a little bit of a battle, um, and it's a, a battle between their their questions and your answers. Now, quite yeah, you know, I think that's that's a, a fun part of the game now. PGC, do you, how many times do you prepare what you're going to say? Oh, I've got some thoughts. Always got some thoughts leading into a conference of, of what I'd like to come out. Um, but sometimes you get agitated. And even though at 59, sometimes you forget what you were supposed to say. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, we see that, uh, yeah, that hardness. And there's, there's lots of legendary stories about how hard you've, you work your, your other coaches or, or work, work players. And I mean, it... <laughs> Does that, um, yeah, does that come naturally, that sort of um, combativeness? Um, I mean, is that just what's necessary if you're going to push people to, to give their very best? Uh, well, I think it's necessary. Uh, you know, I've never known a good team that hasn't worked hard. Now, sometimes the hardness can be an advantage to how you see, and sometimes it's good to have that. Um, so, yeah, we work hard. We work hard. I think, again, I've probably changed over the years. I'm a little bit more understanding. You know, we have rosters now for our staff to take days off. I would never have thought that would happen. And now we do have that, which I think is good, you know, and, and people need it. So we're changing in that way. You know, we have a lot more family breaks for the players because they need it. So I think we're, we're changing and learning in that area. But these, yeah, because there was a lot of talk about turnover of, 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 of staff. I mean, did you, did you ever sort of sit and think, maybe I'm working these guys too hard, or do you just think, well, you know, this is the, this is the pace we're going, you've got well, to keep up? Yeah, there's a couple of things. I think, firstly, you can recruit the wrong people, and I've certainly done that. And, and then secondly, the cultural environment that we have is not going to suit everyone um, because it is a driven environment. You know, when we come here, there's 82,000 people that expect our team to win. And for our team, team to win, we've got to, we've got to have a pretty, pretty good environment. And that takes work, it takes a lot of thought, takes a lot of planning, and that's not for everyone. And so sometimes you lose people along the way. And that doesn't, again, that doesn't really concern me because, you know, we've got the stage now after four years where we've got probably the right staff in place. But if you're saying to you know, Ben Young's... You tell tell us, but supposedly you said, look, you know, here's a bag of sweets. You know, you seem to enjoy those. I mean, is that are you are you preparing that? Is that are you doing that knowing that he's going to respond, or are you doing it saying, well, let's see if you respond? Uh, well, it's a choice. Yeah, you know, at the end of the day, it's always a choice for the players. But yeah, you, know, you, you you've got to. It's one of the things I've probably learned and probably better at doing. You know, in a I wouldn't say nicer way, but a more politically correct way. Whenever you want someone to change, there's got to be some emotional input into it. You've got to get an emotional reaction from the player. And in the old days, you used to use more colourful language and 
and bang on the table. In these days, you've got to be you've got to be much more educated, much more calculating in how you do it. But you still, he'll remember that the rest of his life. And you know, and you just got to look at how he's playing now. He's he's the fittest he's ever been. He's going to be the best halfback in the world. So that little catalyst would have helped. It's not everything because then a lot's up to him. But if you can if you can engage someone and get some emotional feedback, then you've got a great chance of getting a result. So you look at and you're constantly looking at each player, thinking, right, what's the next catalyst for improvement? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, but in some cases, I guess it. It, it can't be a challenge. Maybe it has to be a quiet chat and an arm yeah, around the shoulders. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, and everyone's so different. So you just got to work out what they need, when they need it, and how much they need it. You mentioned that book about Adler and Freud, uh, Freud and, and Jung. I mean, I was. A, I love to read up uh, about that and that psychology. Do, do you read into? away from sport do you read into that type of uh, that area I'm interested in um, just how the, the brain works you know I don't think you can never know enough about that because at the end of the day that's the main influence we have over players is, is how they think you know the tactical and physical parts the easy part but it's how they think so just trying to find out ways of, of how you can do it better um and you never, again, you never arrive there. You're always looking for a different way to do it. Have you, you haven't been on the couch yourself, have you? Have you been on the uh, I don't think so. don't no. think so. <laughs> it's too that, complex. Is that, is that going to happen? Would you, would, you, uh, would you want to unearth what's in there? No, no, but I, I remember when I was with Japan, I, I uh, employed a female sports psychologist, which was in Japanese rugby which is male dominated you know women aren't invited to post-match functions it's it's quite rigid so I employed this uh, female sports psychologist and she was fantastic her name's Cowrie and uh, I remember one day she said to me and she had the courage to say I was so impressed she said you're grumpy you're too grumpy you got to change and I thought it was just fantastic that she had the courage to do that and, and it helped us, helped us in the World Cup because I was at that stage where I was thinking this is too hard um, you know, and it was starting to eat away at me a bit and just her being able to say that again just shows you how much, how important it is to keep looking and observing at people, try to work out what to say um, you know, because the way you present what you say is just so important because it will either have a positive effect or a negative effect. You know, the words are never neutral. Um, and finding the the way to be positive when you want to be positive and then be negative when you want to be negative is, is just so important. You know, I'll give you an example. The other day we were just talking about our defence and we were saying to one of the coaches said to one of the players, you've got to be brave. Now... As soon as you say you've got to be brave, you're suggesting that he's not brave. So it's a really negative way to coach. Um, so we had a good discussion about it and we've got a much more positive way to phrase that. And the, the coach wasn't meaning to say that, but you know, it just goes to show you the, the power of, of how you talk to people is just, just absolutely significant. And you are, as, I mean, I think Alex referenced him before, Alex Ferguson, I think, um, once said that the two most important words in the English language are, are well done. I mean, you're, you're, you have a renown for being this hard, hard taskmaster, but I mean, do you, does that chime something? something yeah, no, 100%, 100%. I think even more so with the young players today, you've got to encourage them, encourage them to play to their strengths, um, encourage them to be, in some ways, free thinking within the framework, um, and that's the trick create a framework for them and then get them to, free th to be free thinking in that. You know, if I look at Man United at the moment, you know, Rashford, he's attacking player and he's all of a sudden been released, hasn't he? Yeah. So he's become this now this force within the team because of one thing that he's probably said, you don't have to work that hard to get back. If you can get back, that's great, but you're going to work hard for us going forward. And that mightn't be right, but it's something, something's happened that's just changed him as a player. Unlocked him. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. just leaping back a bit, but it, the you had a, your playing career 
you didn't get kept, but no. I mean, was was that a driver? Was that just uh, to, to, to the coach you became, or was that just a, a, a different phase? Uh, just a different phase. You know, the great thing for me as a player, I reckon I look back and I did everything I could to be as good as I was, so I don't have any regrets. I wasn't good enough. Um, and I think I had the joy of being caged by some terrible coaches and some really good coaches and so I always think back to the good coaches. Well uh, you presumably you learn from the terrible ones as oh, well. Oh you learn from the terrible ones as well yeah no definitely. Yeah well I, I don't think anyone's um, putting you there so but I really appreciate your time. My um, pleasure. Yeah it's been been been, been fascinating. Thank you. No, it's Cheers. been a pleasure thank you. This edition of Lifetimes has been presented by me Matt Dickinson. It has been produced by Lucy Lavery. To listen to household names speak as you've never heard them before, subscribe to this podcast. Search for Lifetimes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app. And if you like it, please rate and review the series. Lifetimes is a Times newspapers production. To find more of our great journalism, go online at thetimes.co.uk. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.